Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. Our Sunday services have now moved online and you can tune in every week for worship, prayer and our weekly sermon by going to christchurchlondon.org forward slash church hyphen at hyphen home. We're now going to hear the talk from this week's Church at Home service. Hope you are doing well. As you probably are aware, we are currently all at Ashburnham Place for our annual summer retreat. If you've not been able to join us, we miss you, uh, but it's great to be able to share with you on church at home. But even though you're not with us, I just encourage you to see this weekend as an opportunity to reflect and ask God what he might be calling you to do this upcoming year as I share what God has placed on my heart as we look ahead Uh, collectively. I'll be sharing something that I am sharing at the retreat and I know you'll hear feedback from uh, this weekend over the coming weeks as we share where God is leading us. So even though you're not with us, I hope in some way you'll still feel part of this weekend. Now this weekend has often become a marker for us, uh, both personally but also as a church, for how we approach the upcoming year. This year feels more pertinent as we decide in this moment as life is beginning to return to some level of normality, how we're going to live and serve our city. Now, many people saw the beginning of lockdown as an opportunity to reset and people used it as a moment to re-establish habits and practices that they wanted to instill in their life. Nothing wrong with that at all. But I would argue that it's more important to do that now as the busyness of life begins to return when the distractions come back into our lives. And to add to that, I would think we would all say that we all desire to live a life of meaning where we feel like we're growing in our faith, whatever our circumstances, and where we're making a contribution or a difference in the city that we live in. A city that's changed and is different to the one it was 18 months ago. So we have an opportunity to put a marker down as life continues to open up. And we all have this desire to make a difference uh, with our lives, to make a difference in the city in what is a unique moment in history. And what I want to talk about today, I hope and pray, will allow us to process and reflect on those factors. And to help us to do that, I want us to look at the book of James. Now, James is unlike the letters of Paul. It was a letter to all followers of Jesus rather than a group of believers. It's a summary of the wisdom that he has learned in his time learning under Jesus and from leading the first church community in Jerusalem. And the thrust of his letter is on how easy it is for us to live as fractured, inconsistent people. We can claim to follow Jesus, but so often our actions fail to live up to that intention. James shows this by giving a series of short teachings on how often we don't live up to the way of Jesus through our words, how we treat others and how we respond to life's challenges. And so James is reminding us to live lives that are consistent with the way in which we see the world and our deepest values. It's why he places such an emphasis on how our actions and our motivations need to be aligned, how our faith has to be expressed with deeds. Instead of living this inconsistent life, Our goal uh, should be to live a life of wholeness and maturity. And to do that, James uses this Greek word teleos throughout his letter, which is the word that is often translated in English as perfect, which sounds completely unattainable and unrealistic, and is also not exactly what James is getting at. Perhaps a better translation for our context is mature or complete or whole. In fact, James uses this word seven times in his letter, which he would have done intentionally, as that number in the Bible is the number of completion and wholeness. It's it's a word that captures this idea of living an integrated life where your values are always consistent with your actions and the life Jesus calls us to live. 
And the way in which we do that, according to James, is by living a life of wisdom. A wisdom that is not created or discovered through human ingenuity or invention, but a wisdom that comes from heaven and is reflected in the life and teachings of Jesus. Well, I think this is really key for our moment right now, both in terms of how we are able to process this last 18 months and increasingly live the life Jesus calls us to, but also it is key in how we seek uh, to make a difference in our city, uh, which we'll get onto in just a moment. But first, let's read James uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So James gives us this vision of how to live a life of telios, through living out the wisdom that comes from heaven. But James also lays out an opposing vision of wisdom, one that he calls earthly, to put, to put language to what can pull us in the other direction, to make us feel inconsistent, fragmented and disordered, to stop us living a life of telios. Now, just to clarify, what James means by heavenly wisdom isn't that the only things that matter are spiritual things and that what is created or embodied or physical doesn't matter. He's just using that language to create this distinction between what God calls wisdom and what he doesn't. And in the book of Proverbs, which James is heavenly, uh, heavily influenced by, the language used there is wisdom and folly. But James is using heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom instead to present this same idea. And this isn't a unique comparison in the New Testament. Paul does a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6 where he says, yet among the mature, which is that Greek word teleos again, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. And so throughout scripture, we have these two opposing visions of wisdom, heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. And there are consequences and implications for how these two opposing visions of wisdom play out in our lives. Consequences that, if we're not careful, we could easily succumb to without even realising. But firstly, let's look at earthly wisdom. What does that look like? What could that look like in our lives? Now, I'm sure you've noticed uh, that James doesn't just use the word earthly to describe this way of wisdom. He uses three words, earthly, unspiritual and demonic. Now, the wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual is one that removes any sense of transcendence from our existence that, rem existence that removes God as a centre of our life and of creation. And when that happens, when this is all there is, you remove all purpose and all meaning from life. Humanity is no longer made in the image of God, but pure biology and chemistry instead. And so no wonder that way of wisdom leads to bitter envy and selfish ambition. Why would you not seek after your own power, your own comfort and your own wealth when there is no vision of wholeness built upon love or sacrifice or being part of a bigger story or narrative. To live an earthly or unspiritual life is one that focuses on life in such a way that is all to do with the self. Bitter envy, selfish ambition, they all come from a heart that has the self as the most important character in the story. James also uses a third word, the word demonic. Now that can sound strong, but that's probably because we are so embedded in our earthly and unspiritual world. But in my mind, James is saying that one of the ways the enemy pulls his creation away from God is by making it all about the self. 
And one of the ways the enemy distracts God's people from God's purposes. And this is not new. In fact, it's a temptation you can trace back to creation itself, as Adam and Eve were also faced with the choice, live for the self or live for God. The fall happened because the self became more important than God. Now, I'm not saying that those who don't follow Jesus live in a way that is all about them. I'm not saying that at all. And I would be hypocritical if I said I never acted out of selfishness or envy myself. This is more about living in an environment or a culture that's trying to get you to live a certain way. The earthly wisdom is trying to pull you away from the way of Jesus. And it's really important as his followers that we are aware of that. If we are to reflect on the way in which we live, if we are to see this moment as a reset, as a full stop, where we, ha we have to be aware of the powers that are trying to get us to live in such a way that does not reflect God's heart. That the way of the world, earthly wisdom, is so present in our culture, it can be so intense, so demanding of us, that it perpetually pulls us away from seeing the world that is created and is sustained by a good and loving God. We are constantly and consistently fed a world devoid of the knowledge of its creator, stripped of any explanation for this need and desire for transcendence and meaning. But there is no meaning other than what we define within ourselves. We are bombarded with ways of seeing the world and ourselves that are not built upon the way of Jesus, that is not aiming for a life of teleos, of wholeness. The forces in our world of, of individualism or commercialism, to name a couple, are all ways in which our tendency for selfishness or defining our own path can be exploited and taken advantage of. To buy certain things, to live a certain way, to exploit where we are most vulnerable, to see what we want to see and hide those things that would make us feel uncomfortable. But earthly wisdom doesn't just present itself in the larger forces at play, but in our day-to-day -day habits and decisions. In my life, probably the biggest challenge for me is distraction. I often don't have the ability to remove myself from a screen because using that infinite scroll on Instagram is far easier than facing what the day might be asking of me. And all of these forces are competing against each other as we try to make sense of this world. No wonder we feel fragmented and pulled apart. The fruit of living that way is disorder, exhaustion, and the opportunity for evil practice, certainly not life to the full. And the temptation for followers of Jesus in the midst of a culture that is consumed in earthly wisdom is to make our faith just another part of Project Self, another preference or just another thing that we do. And if that is the way we live, we essentially show the world through our lives that Jesus really has not much to offer. It's just another lifestyle choice. If it works for you, then great. If not, there's plenty of other options out there. Alan Noble put it brilliantly in his book, Disruptive Witness. There are just enough notifications, just enough health choices, choices to feel guilty about, just enough answers for why we matter, just enough nice things to keep us grudgingly satiated to prevent us from facing the human heart and the dread of being alone that resides there, simmering beneath the electronic buzz of modern life. And it's the easiest thing in the world to make Christianity just one more identity waving at us for attention as we float along. But it's not. The gospel is not a preference. It's not another piece of flair we add to our vest. It's something far more beautiful and disturbing. The gospel is the power to raise the dead, to proclaim the greatness of God in a fallen and confused world. To be a follower of Jesus in the early 21st century requires, requires a way of being in the world that resists being sucked into the numbing glare of undifferentiated preference we choose from to define our identity. 
The Christian faith is not one lifestyle choice of many. It is the foundation for every decision, every action that we take. It is the lens through which we see the world, and that is heavenly wisdom. And what James, Paul, and the whole of scripture is trying to communicate that the way of maturity, of completeness, of wholeness, of teleos is living by the wisdom that Jesus lays out for us. It's where our time, our relationships, our successes, and our failures all make sense within the larger story of God's kingdom. And as we reflect today and this weekend, I would just encourage you to allow God to search your heart. What are you truly living for? Is your faith the most important thing about who you are or is it just another preference of many? And James is calling us to live a life where our commitment to Jesus and his way is at the core of who we are, a life of heavenly wisdom. And he lists uh, uh, characteristics that come from heavenly wisdom, that it is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, marked by peace. Now, living a life of heavenly wisdom is a life that reflects the life and teachings of Jesus and to use his words it is life to the full or life that is truly life. But right at the beginning of this section James pulls out one characteristic that helps frame the whole teaching. Deeds done in humility. James asks who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. In order to live a life of maturity, perfection, wholeness of teleos, James is saying that the way to do that is to live the way of heavenly wisdom, which at its core has humility. So why is humility so important that he introduces his teaching with that? Well, if envy and pride are the major outworkings of earthly wisdom, of living for project self, it's no wonder then that humility becomes a major outworking of heavenly wisdom. Humility leads you to a place of knowing that you are not the center of the story, that you're part of something that doesn't revolve around you. Humility gives us a proper understanding of who we are, that we are children of God made in his image, created for a relationship with him and to reflect his character, his purposes and his will. And that we are also made for each other, to love one another and cultivate this good world that God has given us to steward that we are part of something bigger than ourselves alone and that we need each other. At its core, this kind of humility reflects a life that is wholeheartedly dependent on Jesus. Henry Nouwen wrote that humility in the spiritual life does not refer to people who have no spine or who let everyone else make decisions for them. They refer to people who are so deeply in love with Jesus that they are ready to follow him wherever he guides them. Humility leads to a life not built upon the many distractions of our age where our faith is just one preference of many, but one that is entirely dependent and wholeheartedly committed to Jesus. But humility is not just an inward state. It isn't just a way of seeing yourself. James says that those who are wise are known by their good life, by deeds that are done and are acted out. And I want to pull out two ways I think that humility brings us to that place and that are incredibly important um, in the moment we find ourselves in right now. Firstly, humility helps clarify our calling. And secondly, it connects us to community. Now, what do I mean by clarifying our calling? How does humility do that? If you live a life by earthly wisdom, chances are you will do all that you can to make something of yourself in order for you to feel some sense of value. Your identity becomes defined by external factors and achievement. But by living a life of humility, you already have your identity, you know your value, and it's not marked by your achievement or what you gain in life, 
is marked by Jesus, by being a child of God made in his image. That doesn't mean you can't work hard or have dreams or have vision for your life. It just changes what your work, your dreams and your vision become. In fact, if you've given your life wholeheartedly to something, it's very difficult not to have those things. Your posture becomes, as David Brooks writes, something more like this. You stop asking, what do I want? And start asking, what is life asking of me? You respond. The humility that comes from heavenly wisdom, from the way of Jesus, frees us from the trap of project self and sweeps us into a story and a calling that is bigger and joins in with God as he renews and restores his creation. And I'd encourage you as you reflect on this today and as we meet over the coming weeks and months, just be open to what God might be saying to you. You may have questions hanging over your life. God, what do you want from me? What should I do? Where should I go? And you might have been shaken from this last year and just resonate with this feeling of feeling fragmented and fractured and want to live a life of teleos. If you're asking those questions, then well done. The very questions themselves speak of the humility of a life that is seeking after heavenly wisdom, that is wanting to live the way of Jesus. And my encouragement to you is to put yourself in positions over these coming weeks to receive and hear from him. Ask others to pray for you. Listen to what provokes you or moves you over these next few weeks and months and be prepared that what God might be calling you to do may not be the easy option and it may not work itself out in weeks or months but over the whole course of your life. But don't allow, don't allow that to stress you out or cause anxiety or allow suffering or pain to think that he is absent or far away. In fact, perhaps the most powerful example of how heavenly wisdom works itself out or how it differs to earthly wisdom is through the trials of life. Our culture is set up for us to avoid any form of trial or suffering, let alone discomfort. We demand and expect our desires to be met, that anything that inconveniences us is met with at the very least frustration. But that is not the wisdom that comes from Jesus. That is not the wisdom we see in the New Testament. That is not heavenly wisdom. At the very start of James's letter, in just a second verse, James says that we are to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds, that, that the perseverance that comes from going through trials is one of the ways that we become teleos, mature and complete. That is not just a different coping mechanism, that is a completely different way of seeing the world. When we look at our lives, when we see the pain, the trials, the moments where we've been let down, just take a moment to remember that that is the way of Jesus. You are walking in his footsteps. And take time over these weeks just to be open to hearing from him. About six or seven years ago, I was at actually one of our uh, evening sessions at our retreat. And I had in my mind a picture that was given to me years before about what God might be calling me to do. And I remember thinking, that's not me. I can't do that. I can't, I can't do it. At the very moment, someone walked up to me and described the exact picture that was going over in my mind. It was a, a profound moment for me. It hasn't meant that everything has been smooth or clear as I've tried to live the life God has called me to live, but it certainly helped. I felt known, I felt seen, and perhaps most importantly, that I wasn't alone that God was with me and it gave me courage to take the next steps. And so I encourage you just to be honest with God and with yourself and be open to what God might be calling you to do. When we humble ourselves, we are then in a position for God to use us in a way that is unique to us and the life we've been given. But there's another way, another reason why I think humility and calling are two words that are to be kind of held side by side in this moment. And that's because I think the world is crying out for humility. I think it's desperate for it, particularly in those that have influence or lead others. I think it needs people who are driven not to make a name for themselves, not act out of defensiveness, but instead are marked by loving God and loving their neighbour. 
Humility brings us to a place where God can use us, but it also answers the call of a city crying out for people to live for God and for others. So humility clarifies our calling. And secondly, humility connects us to community. Humility says that I cannot exist on my own. Humility is expressed with others. Heavenly wisdom, the wisdom that comes from the way of Jesus, cannot be lived, outlived in isolation. Jesus didn't even live that way. And with what's happened over these last 18 months, for some of us, there will be a te temptation to disengage, to treat your church community as an optional choice you dip in and out of, rather than being like the fellowship of believers we read about in Acts 2, committed to the same cause, who bring the best out in one another. I am more of the person God has made me to be because of the people I choose to be with week in and week out. When I spend time with Natalie or Nathan or Adnan or Susanna, I become more of the person God is calling me to be when I am embedded within my church community. Don't live your faith out on your own independently. You can't do it, but live it out with others interdependently. I think this passage is so important right now because our city needs people who are not living for Project Self, but humbly giving their lives to God and to this city. Those things are timeless. That has been the call of Jesus' followers since the church began, but now is such a unique moment. I think it becomes even more important for us to remember that. And so I believe in this moment, as we seek to be restored, as we seek to hear God for this next season and set a marker down for how we want to live and how we want our life to be as life opens up once more, God is calling us to maturity and wholeness, to living a life of telios, marked by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. He's calling us to live lives where our faith is not one choice of many, but the deepest part of our identity. And perhaps in this unique moment where we are hoping to make a difference, what if the fuel for our contribution was not the way of earthly wisdom, where we seek to make a name for ourselves, but instead was marked by humility, where we simply seek to love and to serve Jesus and love and to serve the city where we live? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us such wisdom through your word. We thank you that you have called us. We thank you that you have given us church community. You've given us people to be uh, alongside with. And God, as we move into this new season, into this new chapter, Lord, I pray that you would do whatever we need to be restored, to be refreshed, to process these last 18 months, God. But you'd also prepare us for the call you have on us as a church for, these next, for this next year. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you guide us? Would you embed each and every one of us within this church community? And would you give us um, just this desire to want to serve and love you and serve and love our city? Lord, would we be a church marked by humility that comes from heavenly wisdom? Amen. We hope you enjoyed this talk from the Christchurch London podcast. To hear other talks or find out more about our Sunday services, head to christchurchlondon.org.